Hey, Arpreneurs. This episode is some adult language and mature themes. If you're around young children, it might be best to listen later or with headphones on. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Cue the music. Back in the day, we had a whole, whole like imprint of like babbling brook and it, like nature sounds. It was called environments, and um, you know it was like everyone was so so excited to buy anything on a CD. They like literally buy sound of waves, and we'd sell <laughs> shit tons of them. That's not that surprising to me though, because now you have all the like. Right. sound apps and stuff. Yeah. I use a rain app. It's the same concept. You just need like that concept. kind of white noise sometimes or it, or some people work well to that. I put on mm -hmm. white noise playlists also. Like you can get like eight hours on YouTube of white noise. Yeah, that's what I was You talk about sounds. a business model. It's like, okay, my man, take your microphone, go sit out on the beach and record the waves for a couple hours. Well, I mean, who, who who's owed royalties? The ocean? But it's also like one of our first discussions around entrepreneurship and art and soundscapes. Up and I talked about the research the, of that one ecologist and researcher too. It's you can not only is it soothing, but you, it can tell you a lot about what's happening in the environment. Just listening to mm -hmm. the ocean or the forest, it's cool. It is. It is as the great poet. Who's like the great um, the drunk uh, Dylan Thomas? The great poet Dylan Thomas. Drunk, the great drunk. Well, he, he likes his beverages. Uh, the great, the great poet Dylan Thomas said, "Time passes. Listen." Do you have a Star Wars T-shirt on, Dan? The Millennium sure Falcon. Does. The Millennium, you have a Millennium Falcon, Falcon T-shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> Weekend tees, baby. Weekend tees. You so you have t-shirts designated for the weekend? I don't know that I'd wear a Star Wars t-shirt on a client Zoom call. That makes sense. Maybe I have. I don't think so though. Alright, <laughs> so what, what what work have we been doing these days? These, these glorious summer days. Today's the longest day of the year. Is it? Yeah. It's gonna stay light until ten thirty on the East Coast. I'm not true. Why are you being <laughs> I, like, I was like, that can't be true. But when has it sure. ever stayed light until 10.30 in the it East Coast? Late, light, super late in Germany. Like, really sure. late. It stays it, light it, and hot. And so I just thought, did I forget that that happens here, too? I don't know. Maybe it's going to be light until 10.30. 8.32 p.m. <laughs> yeah, 8.30, but, I mean, which is late, but it's not 10.30. Yeah, no, it's the longest day of the year. It, I mean, the sun doesn't go down. It's just like all day. It's just and not all night. Doesn't set. Two hours of night. Yeah. Yeah. There's. A, it's like. Um, yeah. It's like Iceland or something. Yeah. It just reminded me of um, that Midsummer mm. movie. Dan, you listen to that. <clears throat> I swear, I never have a tickle in my throat until I'm trying to record something. You I'm so sorry. always have a tickle in your throat. Dan must have to sit there and edit. <clears throat> I <clears throat> I mute myself. I try to. <clears throat> I don't know what it is. It's like a nervous <clears throat> tick, I guess. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe. <laughs> but um, you listened to the Scaredy Cat podcast, yeah? Or did you? The, listened to the first episode. And I was from like, the reply. Eh. I, I, I liked it. This one didn't, didn't pull you in? If, if, uh, if I'd watched the movies, maybe if I watched the movies beforehand and then listened to it, 
Uh, but, but you'd seen The Exorcist. I don't even know if I have. I'm sure I've seen you'd parts know. of it. But... Oh, you would know. But like, the Exorcist isn't one. It's like, yeah, maybe. I mean, she's her head spins around and yeah, amongst other things. I've you, seen you, that. You, yeah, I feel like I've seen a that a hundred times. Yeah, yeah, that clip. But, but there's so I'm, like, sure I'm not going to talk about some of the other right. things that she does on a on a podcast. But but you would remember The Exorcist. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't listen to it though, knowing how much you like Reply O. Yeah, I, I think my um, my horror movie vocabulary is pretty limited. Um, yeah. so it's like listening to someone talk about it. It's like reading, it's like reading a Wikipedia article mm. of a movie, except someone is reading it to you. Um, yeah. With, with, you know, fun personality and stuff. But I was like, I, if, now, well, if, if you don't have great albums. Right. It, but if, it, and if it doesn't like compel you to go, so I haven't seen Midsommar or whatever. That's um, the, yeah. In the last episode, I think there's only four episodes too. It's a short yeah, thing short. that we've done. I had seen, obviously, Exorcist, and um, they did one on, on Nightmare on Elm Street, which I've seen, and then they did... Alien. Alien, which is awesome. Like, I mean... It, oh, they did Alien? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do a really good job with Alien. Yeah. And, but, I, but I hadn't seen Midsommar, and, but listening to it makes me, makes me really want to see it. And so Hereditary. They did, that, they did they some did double that too, features. But I, I don't think I want to see that after what they said. I've seen parts of Hereditary, um, but I'd never even heard of Midsummer. But anyways, it just reminded me of it because they go to this like festival in Sweden where um, it's the time of the summer where the sun doesn't set. When it's an interesting setting for a horror movie, which is normally and Hereditary is like a really actually dark. It's always at night or in a dark, mm-hmm. spooky house, and then to have. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I you think it's an interesting. You do it in IRL too. I have it too. We all have our things. Should I see a doctor? I don't know what's wrong with me right now. Call, look okay. up if you if you Google it, it will come back that you have um, throat cancer. You know, exactly. Always like that's what Web, WebMD. Any any search for anything like oh I've got this like little tiny. Um, scratch on my finger and you web md it it's like oh well undoubtedly you have cancer i know everything and <laughs> everything all roads lead to cancer according to web md um but dan you mentioned to us an episode of reply all and i don't want to spend too much time but i feel like we need to add a disclaimer of some of the recent recommendations i in particular have made mm-hmm. do you want to talk about the um the reply all episode that you yeah shared with us? um since we uh, brought them up because of, the name of that episode and also there might be some some uh uh, uh, Joe Rogan disclaimer. That's what maybe? I. That's uh, what I yeah, was referring should. to, actually. Mm-hmm. So, One of our listeners okay. actually uh, sent me a tweet saying, "You don't have to listen to this guy, George." <sighs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The timing of of us talking about him could not have been worse. Worse, <laughs> and I I stand by that you should engage in conversations with people that stand on opposite sides politically, religiously than you. 
I completely would like to go on the record retracting my recommendation that people listen to that podcast. And for anyone that had it as a future plan, I'm going to just take a moment to take that back. Yeah. Well, and we should just be clear that the, there was a video that was circulated of him laughing at a, his friend talking about how he has girls perform sexual acts on him if they want to do stand up comedy. Uh, fucking wild. But yeah, I don't know how these people have such long, fruitful careers. And no, but maybe that's not going to happen anymore. Now, maybe now people are just going to start calling people on their shit when it happens rather than years later. I mean, one would hope. I'm actually reading Roland Farrow's Patch and Kill right now, which is just kind of, I mean, it wasn't very long ago, the Harvey Weinstein case, but kind of remembering all of these things and how it then bled into the Access Hollywood tapes with Trump and Billy Bush and then Matt Lauer. And it's just, um, it sucks that we have to have a conversation around that as often as we need to have a conversation around police brutality. It's like some of these things just never seem to go away. But um, yeah, that was a real bummer to see. And for anyone that was taking (laughs) that advice to heart or had planned on listening to an episode, let's just, uh, you can recommend the reply one as a, anyone that was going to listen to a Joe Rogan episode, take that off your list and listen to this one instead. Yeah, so last week's Reply All, June 18th, uh, it was an episode called The Least You Can Do, and they had their producer, Emmanuel, oh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his last name right, D-Z-O-T-S-I, Zotzi. Um, but he's, Emmanuel is, uh, is a black man. He's talking about how uh, there's this phenomenon of white people Venmoing their black friends as some form of reparations, whether their black friends ask for it or not. And <laughs> just how people feel about that. And it's, it's such a weird, complicated dynamic. It's yeah. bizarre. And it's, it's bizarre. I'd never heard of that happening. I didn't know if people were doing that, but there, for anyone that hasn't listened yet, it's like Venmoing ex-boyfriends and girlfriends or friends five dollars and and suggesting that they have a coffee on them it's just it's one of those things where you know that the intentions are are good but the actual act is just bizarre i know there's strange. a word for it it is called noblesse oblige um and it is a loaded word and it is this and it's, it's one that should be rephrased it should be retired this idea of the anointed noble class having an obligation to, it's like, could you just be a fucking human being? Yeah. Well, I, he, he interviewed um, one guy. I think the guy lived in California. Uh, and my take on it was this guy wanted to feel better about the fact that he wasn't doing anything. So he demoed a black friend $5 or however much it was. And 
that small act was like, now all is forgiven. I don't have to be mm-hmm. guilty anymore. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, it's like good, when you right? go into the fucking um, uh, thing in the Catholic thing and, and be like, well, I did all these horrible things. Father, forgive me. Yeah, sure. Do some Hail Marys. Give some money to this church that is the institutionalized fucking pedophilia. This is systemic cleansing of, of bad acts. It's bullshit. Did you forget you the word for church, or did you just not want to say it? <laughs> you know who is what I thought was is a better way to approach this. It has to be at an institutional level. Um, Jeff Tweedy continues to impress me with his humanity, um, and he he put a, a tweet out from Wilco that said that that he Jeff Tweedy will be donating five percent of his writer's share of public performance money. Um, in perpetuity, I think, just 5% right off the top to uh, BLM causes. And he made a call for for uh, the PROs, ASCAP and BMI, to do the same, right? And, and I'm going to make the call for publishers to donate 5% of their publisher's share to these types of things. I said it last week, our industry is one of, the music business, is one of the prime offenders when it comes to institutionalized racism. I have been saying it for literally fucking decades. If this is the time, and people much smarter than I have been saying it for much longer than I, and people who've actually been affected by it in negative ways rather than me, who's just been benefited by it, right? There's no scenario that in in, in 19, uh, no, yeah, 1999 or whatever, Chris Blackwell, Scion, lovely guy, signed Bob Marley, first hit was, was uh, um, um, Little Millie, uh, uh, my lollipop, whatever. Chris Blackwell grew up in Jamaica, you know, absolutely unequivocally someone who is, you know, has reconciled his, his worldview of, of race. Um, but, but also the scion of some, you know, rich, uh, family, you know, I mean, he, 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 he scouted locations for Dr. No and he walked because he was a water skiing instructor when he, in his, you know, like name me some people of colors who's like, Oh, I think this summer I'll be a fucking water skiing instructor. Right. But in any case, no scenario that pl- Chris Blackwell plucks me out of, you know, relative obscurity to, to run a, a record company. If I'm a black guy, in, in 2000, uh, 1999 or whenever it was, just 0% chance. Also 0% chance that I ever would have had the luxury to be, you know, go to college and, and not have to worry about debt, let alone have to worry about being fucking arrested and spend most of my time playing guitar and reading books. You know, it's, it's institutionalized. So, um, yeah, don't Venmo people money. Instead, look at institutional things. And just to be very clear about this, the whole publishing business is, is, is this black box crazy land that even my, my, my students don't understand well. But the writer share is something that, that the PROs put in place in the, in the early days of the, of the modern music era because the fucking publishers were taking the writer's money. So to this day, when a song gets played on the radio, the writer's share collected by ASCAP and BMI goes directly to the writer. It has to bypass the 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 uh, the publishers late, or any other institution. Um, Facebook, uh, Netflix, and others are trying to obliterate that and just say, no, 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 we're just not going to pay it. Just period, full stop, right? So Tweedy coming out and saying, 
I get this writer's share. I write a song. The, I don't know if he's his own publisher or whatever, but his writer's share comes right to him, and he's saying, I'm going to essentially take a 5% um, reduction and donate that, and he's calling on others to do it. But most importantly would be if the publishers would do that, to take the publisher's share and take 5%. And, and if ASCAP and BMI wanted to do the right thing, nobody knows how much money they make, right? Because they, they will not disclose. They're, quote, self-audited, whatever the hell that means. And so why, why don't they set up a fund um, and take X percentage and, and re recirculate it. It's just like that's that's how you systemically change to give people more opportunities. Not by I don't know this particular story about people fucking Venmoing coffee, but that's just that's just trying to that's like going to the that place the, the church place you know, and give forgive me for my sins. No, you reconcile with your own fucking sins. Have autonomy. There's nobody that can forgive you for your sins. It's a really well done story, and <laughs> Emmanuel does a great job of. He balances being a, an impartial journalist while also dealing with the fact that he's he's a black man with white friends, and he I think he said he went to a college that was largely white, um, and then he moved to New York and tried to, uh, I guess, be more um, involved in kind of the black community, and so his perspective on people doing this um and, and trying to make themselves feel better uh yeah it's yeah. really interesting yeah it's, yeah i mean isn't that it though isn't it that it's like you know what don't fucking feel better for a while right like i mean a, a couple episodes ago i talked about about that like that hot pepper that i ate and like there was nothing that i could do to make it go away i just had to to live with it live with your fucking sins for a while stop there's no God or Christ or Buddha or whatever that's going to forgive you for your sins. You have to reconcile with that. It doesn't mean that you have to carry guilt and beat yourself up, but looking for some third party to forgive your sins is bullshit. Who has autonomy to do that over you? I think the problem also is that, yeah, I mean, it shifts the burden back on right. to the right. person of color. It says, mm. like, I feel mm. guilty and I need you to take this off of me, which is the Bingo. problem. And I do think, I mean, like, not I'm their job. About, yeah. Sorry. And I'm laughing about it because it is ridiculous to be like, here's $5 during amid everything that's happening. But even though I'm sure, and he introduced someone that actually did it, and you can tell, like, he, He's not confident in the decision that he made. He saw someone, I think, suggested on Twitter or something and then did that as well. And I do think that there are a lot of people who are just trying to figure out just something to do, something that feels like they're taking some kind of action. But this kind of action in particular, it just says, I feel bad and I need to put this somewhere. So I'm going to just put it back on you. And that is a part of the systemic problem. It, it it's lacks a cycle. Empathy, right? Exactly. It also violates the Kantian precept of using someone else as a means to an end. Here, I will give you this money so that I can use you to feel better about myself. Stop doing that. If you yeah. know nothing about philosophy, if you know nothing about ethics, just remember Kant. 
Do not see people as a means to an end. View them as an end in and of themselves. Accept them for who they are. Love them for who they are. Do not manipulate them to your needs. Mm -hmm. Fuck. I don't know why that's so hard. And we all do it. I mean, the, the thing that stuck with me so much from last week's show, Carly, is what you talk about white fragility, and I've, I've just started it. Um, but man, oh man, the way you summed it up, and I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't want to even try. I just would direct people to go back and listen to the way that you expressed it, um, because it has stuck with me all week. I say I don't want to try. The thing that stuck with me, and this is me trying to talk through it, but but we're all racists. We all see color, right? And this this idea, and you said it really well, of of of, of oh, I don't see color. Bullshit, right? It, it's not about not seeing color. And I love well, the fact that, that we're talking about the, the impactfulness of words. You know, um, uh, 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 white hat versus black hat whitewashing all these words the whole the, the coding communities finally pulled their heads out of their ass and say maybe we shouldn't we shouldn't um reference master slave dynamics in our code you think white listing and blacklisting right mm -hmm. right maybe we should stop saying phrases like blacklisting for for sites that we don't want you know that's obviously embedded in racism i mean you don't even have to think about it it's not like you know selling someone down the river that's that that's trickier to kind of parse out blacklisting yeah how is that how does anybody not see that that's a racist kind of um semantic ah but i think the problem is a lot of people don't see it as that it's just a it's a word that you learn and then when you look at it a bit differently, you do see the implications of it, but that's a part of the problem is we have to kind of, we, words do matter and things that we've been taught. And again, I, I, I like how, what she says about, you know, people who, who consider racists or acts of racism as intentionally malicious actions is a very small segment of it. Racism is this, kind of implicit bias that we aren't even aware, but we continue to perpetrate by using those types of words, by supporting the types of, of institutions and systems that keep white supremacy kind of at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. But, but I think it reminds me also, and I, maybe it was in the podcast with Zoe Keating or our discussions about it after, but <clears throat> George, you said something about, you know, we as a society, we, we have to choose the type, like we have the power to choose the type of institutions that we have and we can support them with, you know, financial donations or by voting or, you know, whatever the case may be, but we need different institutions in our society that help kind of, whether it's, you know, the 5% but, of, sorry? No, I didn't mean to interrupt you, please. Um, uh, I kind of You're saying the five percent, and I, I like I things up like that. Like we, yeah, certain institutions just need to kind of change or be different. I, I've been, I mean, Ben and Jerry's pop up a, a lot in um, kind of like times of protest, and I was reading something about them again this week, and um, I actually didn't realize that they have a whole that they really a, a part of their kind of company culture is that they hire 
people who are in jail. They hire people with criminal records. Um, and they pay like higher than minimum wage. And so then their product costs more money. But those are the kind of, and again, I'm saying we need better kind of like societal institutions and then talking about Cherry Garcia ice cream. But it's big on, and I, small. Yeah. Hold on to that for a second. Ben and Jerry's is a company that I talk a lot about when I teach ethics. And, and, and it's because they're a very purpose-driven company and they've somehow managed to keep those values. Two guys that decided it was a good idea in Vermont, a place not known for its warm climb, um, to start a ice cream shop. Right. So, I mean, you know, in a in a gas station. Right. That's how Ben and Jerry started. Right. Two hippies like and they didn't know what they wanted to do, but they wanted to do something impactful and they liked ice cream. So they started an ice cream shop. They start getting getting some traction because they make really good ice cream. Right. And then and then uh, uh, they start getting a little bit of, of momentum and, and then they get a call from uh, from uh, one of the, the stores that carries their, their ice cream. And the store says, hey, guys, we're sorry to tell you this, but um, we can't carry your ice cream anymore, and either Ben or Jerry, or whatever. Says, so why not? And and they said, well, you know, we got this call uh, from Hagen Dazs, and they said they told us that we can either carry Hagen Dazs or Ben and Jerry's, but not both, right? Which is a prima facie um, antitrust violation. You're not allowed to do that, right? So Ben and Jerry's have to kind of wrestle with this, and they, they seek legal counsel. And the, the, the you know they're, they're still at this point a, a relatively new company, and and the, the 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 lawyers say, well, you guys are on the right side of the law, but the, but Hagen Dazs, which is owned by Pillsbury, will just will just bleed you to death. There's no way that you can win this case. They will kill you with attrition just through legal fees. So Ben and Jerry start thinking about this, and they realize a couple of things. One, Hagen Dazs. Either of you know what Hagen Dazs means? Nothing. Oh. Right. It does not translate. It is a made-up yeah. name, right? It's a made-up <laughs> name to try to give the impression of water, you know, coming from some alp or something made into ice cream. You know where it was originated? Newark, New Jersey. Okay? Not exactly that hotbed of, of you know, fresh, sparkling, crystalline water. Scandinavian. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah. So, huh? <laughs> I mean, go ahead. <laughs> so... So Ben and Jerry go, well, what the hell are we going to do? And, and, and they instead, and then you got to remember, by the way, this is like the eighties or something. So they, they, they go back to their purpose, not product, their values. And, and they, they go to places that, that, that tend to have values that align with theirs. Where are these places? College campuses. And they start handing out flyers that, that have kind of like the Pillsbury Doughboy and the same like Ghostbusters with a line through it saying the Pillsbury Doughboy wants to kill Ben and Jerry's and tells the story. They just tell the story. And 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 then they also uh, got one of those little flags that fly in the back of planes. I don't, there's a word for it. I don't know what they are. Like a blimp? <laughs> no, like the, the, the tail. The, like a blimp flies to the back of a plane. It'd be a terrible blimp. No, a plane with one of those tails that has slogans you see at the beach. Banner. Yeah. Banner. Yeah, that flies. It's not and like a proper plane, though. I feel like a blimp is a better. <laughs> they did not attach a blimp to a plane, um, though I wish they had. And, and, and they flew it over Fenway Park, right? And so they start getting this kind of word of mouth. So now. Ben and Jerry's ha has has gotten into the and this news story start happening. Imagine, imagine what would have happened if there had been you know Twitter or Facebook at this point. But it starts going what we call now viral, right? People start talking about it, and so now Hagen Dazs has a decision to make: 
Do they want more people to know that their entire brand name is built on a complete lie, right? Um, because the story will keep momentum up. Or do they want to just allow Ben and Jerry's to do their thing? And obviously what happens is they withdraw their suit. Ben and Jerry's goes on and, prosper, and prospers along the way. But it, it's an example that I always use about how values lead to um, transparency of values can lead to brand equity, which can lead to a, a stronger bond. So, Carly, when you say, you know, who cares about this or that, you know, your, your story about them paying a little bit more. Um, and, and, that, and therefore, to, to, to people of color or, or inmates or whomever, probably both, um, and, and then that causing the ice cream costs a little more, customers love that. That's a distinction. It's their value, right? And, and somehow, even with a sale to Unilever, like Ben & Jerry's is not an independent company. They, they screwed up their stock. Uh, <laughs> their stock. One of the thing, cool things they did with their stock, they when they first issued their stock, they did it away so that only people in Vermont could buy Ben & Jerry's stock, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> but then they, they didn't frame their board well, and so there was sort of a hostile takeover by Unilever, who owns Ben & Jerry's. But still, it's one of the only examples that I can think of of a, of, a, of a very values-based company that was acquired by a big company, Unilever makes, you know, dominates money through like sewage trick treatment or something, right? Um, uh, not losing its values. It still has that brand equity. And so when we think about art and culture and those things, leading with that purpose, finding others that appreciate that purpose can give you competitive advantage in, in that competitive advantage can't be on price. Look at Wilco, right? The, the, Jeff Tweedy's doing great, as best I can tell, right? They can do their festivals, they, they sell a bunch of records, they do it on their own terms. As I, you know, after that that that, that tweet, I was like, I, I gotta go, I gotta talk to him, you know. And I I I, uh, I, 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 I used to know his manager, but then I found out that he's self managed now. So you know, he just does his thing. Is he ever going to be as big as? you know, Beyonce or something? No, but he's got such fierce loyalty and, and brand equity attached to it that people, it's, it's, it's so simple to me. Transparency leads to ethical fiber, bond of trust, leads to reduced transaction costs around marketing and law, whatever, and higher impact and higher margin. And I don't get why people don't understand that. Well, that haagen story sounds very similar to something that happened this week, right, with Hay. And the Apple Apple App Store yeah, guidelines. Those guys. Well, yeah. I mean, you're talking. About I the didn't base hear camp. of this. Can you guys give some context? Yeah, it's the base camp thing. Go ahead, dude. Uh, hey, is a new email platform, email provider from the people that make Basecamp, um, who are very outspoken, often kind of controversially about yeah. their values, um, and especially what's the. Um, DHH. Yeah, yeah, I forget what that stands for or what his actual name is, but um, those are his initials. Well, both of them, and they've written a couple books. I mean, the 37 Signals is, I think, the name of the parent company. That was and their original. One of their books. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the name, and the Basecamp's a product, and now yeah. Hay's another product. And they wrote, uh, I think, Rework was one of the books. Yeah. The Jason, which, Jason Freed, is that his name? And I read that book years ago, back before I started working with you, and that was, mm-hmm. that was one of my I need to get out of the office I think that's a good book. It's a good book. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, you want well, to tell the, story? Yeah. I mean, the, the argument is they, they submitted their app for Apple store approval. Um, and they don't want to, they don't want people to be able to do in-app purchases because if, Hey, Basecamp allows 
in-app purchases, then Apple controls and just the flow of money, but refunds and customer support and, uh, Hey, can't control any of that. And Apple takes 30%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so if you want to sign up for, Hey, you have to go to the Hey website and pay there, and then you can use the app, which is the same as Netflix or Spotify and Spotify. Mm Um, I mean, you can, you can do it. Go ahead. Sorry. That's because, um, Apple has a competing product with Spotify. I thought that's why that ended up. See, this is the problem. Apple's policy in the app store is opaque. And yeah. to use the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the rules of the, the language of our court this wonderful week, arbitrary and capricious. They, they tend to change the rules kind of to fit and, and it is, it's becoming a real problem, but you're, you're articulating this far better than I said, so please. Continue. Well, and the, the big discussion has now been around the 30% cut as well, yeah. I guess, as, as well as the confusing guidelines. Um, but the the interest the the history of that thirty percent cut is interesting. I think it was I think it was Walt Mossberg that tweeted this, uh, where when um, when Steve Jobs announced that thirty percent fee for all purchases through the App Store, that was when previously if you wanted to download an app, it was through your phone carrier and they right. were charging like fifty to seventy percent. So at the time. 30% was a great deal and that was incredibly developer friendly. And now in the past 10, 15 years, the world has changed. Uh, I don't know what Google charges, but uh, I, it's, it's time to kind of reconcile that. It's, it, it's a really interesting conundrum, right? Because I mean, if, if we take the Apple tax, that 30% off the table, which is like pushing the elephant out of the room, because that's a big one. But what's happened is, in my perspective, it's that Apple, the, 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 the pros of the Apple approach are very customer centric, right? Which is mm-hmm. Apple in a nutshell. Like th- their whole thesis on having, as, as you have too, I think Dan, and, and probably you too, Carly, the, the process of trying to get something through the Apple, you know, gatekeepers and, uh, and onto an Apple store is a very baffling process, right? And yeah. it's no fun. And it, it, you know, you can get rejected and go through it. And it's just, and, and, and to their defense, they're trying not to be the Google Play Store, which is often filled with just, you know, things that are objectively bad, either either broken or malware or whatever. So, so they're doing a curatorial service in, to, in, from their perspective in the interest of keeping the customers happy, which is, is their job. The problem is, is that the, the developers are also their customer. And if you look at the growth of the App Store or, or the iPhone or whatever, Steve Jobs, to my mind, the, the, the brilliance of, of, of him wasn't so much about the, the, the design and all of those things, but was opening, uh, creating that App Store. Because what it did was it shifted the burden, created network effect around something that otherwise just never would have gotten the traction. You started buying the iPhone, not so much for the iPhone, but for the apps that you could get on it, right? And then he just had a had everyone on the planet building things that, that ultimately sold his product for him, which was super genius, right? But now, as you say, Dan, the, 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 the dynamic, the balance is off, right? Where the mm-hmm. developers are kind of going, yeah, we get that, that you know, we, we need you as a distributor, right? But you're taking too much. It, it's gotten out of balance. And, and Apple has to now reconcile the idea of, well, we need to keep our customers happy. This can't be a free-for-all. On the other hand, you know, it, you're right about the Ben & Jerry thing because the, 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 the 37 Signal guys are very vocal, are very public. 
they're also uh, Amazon's a big investor in 30 or at least has a stake in 37 signals um, and so know you know they've got they've got that security blanket and now we can argue who who is more or less evil Amazon or Apple but um, but yeah it's become a very public thing and it's interesting to kind of, kind of watch and I feel it acutely with a lot of the companies that I run like that 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 Apple tax is is a real margin you know, hit, you know, where it's like every dollar that comes in, Apple's taking 30 cents for distributing it. When we started TuneCore, we, we, we intentionally did it the other way because with, with Apple, we knew that they were going to take their, their percentage. The other, the other competing aggregators, the CD babies and the orchards or whatever, they all took a 9% back end. And, and Jeff and I just were like, no, what? Like we'll, we'll pay, you pay us for a service, right? And then we'll take zero percent, whether you whether you, you know, because it's residual. Again, going back to the systemic thing for Jeff and, and, and for me, that that nine percent ongoing royalty just to tune core for doing nothing was too much of a vestige of anachronistic. And to both of our minds, and I know I can speak to Jeff for this um, racist culture of kind of indentured servitude that the labels put on on artists where even after the label's job is done they continue in perpetuity to take a cut for doing nothing and you could argue that they had some they were doing something when they were distributing things and making plastic for cds and everything but once it became digital they're literally doing nothing it's what's known as rent seeking Right. And so that's what's happening from economic terms. It's rent seeking. And the best way to understand rent seeking is like if you're a king and you've got you've got a, a, a stream that goes through your fiefdom and people are going up and down through your fiefdom. They're not causing you any harm. They're not you know, doing anything. And you put a gate on it and you charge then. And, because, and rent seeking means that you, you are now profiteering off of someone while not adding any additional economic value. So that Apple tax is can be viewed as rent seeking at this point where it's like well what are you doing we're happy to pay you a fee we're happy to do something but the 30 percent is rent seeking you're not improving things all you're doing is create gumming up the, the general kind of economic flow so i mean if if this does get people more to, to better understand the economics behind the scenes great and to understand i know something that you're deeply interested in carly like economic theory but rent seeking is an important one to look at in digital economies but I wonder if it will have much of an impact because Spotify went after the Apple tax like pretty aggressively. They had all of those videos and stuff. I think it was just last summer. And they obviously put a lot of money and manpower into that conversation, which kind of just went away. It's, 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 well, I mean, in this dance, there's antitrust issues around music because they're in the same category. Like, does Apple have competitive advantage? Um, against an independent because Apple, Google, um, Amazon all use music as loss leaders. In other words, they all say, well, look, you can you get music for free if you buy Amazon Prime, if you, you know, and, and whereas Spotify, and I will not defend Spotify, but Spotify is is what's known as sort of, or used to be until they did the podcast thing, just sort of a pure play entertainment thing where it's like no we, we don't use music as a loss leader we we have to profit off of it we can't because we can't compete with others that can give it away and so then you get into kind of antitrust issues in the same way microsoft and netscape and bundling and those types of things or internet explorer um uh so that a slightly different but 
but adjacent issue. But it does also remind me, I mean, you see what's going on with, um, is it is it AG or Live Nation that are saying that artists yeah. are going to be yeah. responsible for it? Like, yeah, what Live Nation. in the holy fuck are you talking about? And so you do reach these tipping points, and I hope this is one with Live Nation and the same with Apple, where you get people as big, big, quote-unquote, as as the 37 Signal guys going, um, no, and hopefully some artists will do the same with Live Nation. Go, uh, no, you, it, again, it's just rent-seeking. You know, how, mm-hmm. in what ways are you profiting? The Live Nation thing is crazy, though. It is wild that they would even feel brazen enough to imply that. But with Live Nation, it's so complicated, too, because they own so many venues. Like, they've inserted themselves. It's not just that they are the ones putting on the tours, they actually own the buildings. And so as an artist to go against Live Nation, it's, I don't know, I will be- Well, but it's going on forever, Pearl Jam. I mean, I I, I I did a lot of work with this with with, with Intel and Radiohead and like, I mean, it's, it's, it's similar to that Apple tax. Like you can't get around it, which at that point you have to question, is this monopolistic, you know, behavior? Does this violate anti-Sherman antitrust act issues? And to your point exactly, Carly, it's like Live Nation went around and just summarily bought up all the small clubs and rolled them up. And so all the small club, independent club owners are like, (laughs) we, you know, again, and and to your point, this is like, we as a society have to decide, is this what we want? Do we want these behemoth companies to just dictate our, our funnel of information and entertainment or what have you? And again, and Dan, you've talked about this a ton, um, is this moment, this COVID related kind of live streaming where people are trying to figure it out? Live, Live Nation doesn't own that. Live Nation doesn't yet own the pipes and the pipeline towards how you can monetize your, your live stream. Where mm-hmm. in, in typical in most events, live events, they do. They they set the price. Yeah. They add on the the, the the fees, and now they're turning around. And, and I I've just been too disgusted to even kind of dig through it. But it appears that they're now saying somehow that the artists have to. I, I don't know. Maybe you guys can. Tell it's the it's story. if the if the artist cancels the show, they yeah. have to pay. I think it's two times the guarantee back to the promoter. Yeah. Uh, They're going to collect that. Yeah. That's what I mean, though. I, it's not clear how they would enforce it, and it's just a really brazen thing to even try to ask for. I, well, I they must be desperate, right? That. They must. Yeah. I, I don't know what their margins were like or, or their how profitable they were before this, but if they were operating on thin margins and now they're losing yeah. a year plus maybe of, of revenue. Um, but those companies are ripe for disruption. I mean, when you look at a, a live nation or a ticket master, when you've got a net promoter score, that's probably negative 70 or something like everybody hates you. A substitute comes along the problem is monopolies make it difficult for substitutes to emerge. But, well, but that's what's interesting, right? So there couldn't have been, I shouldn't say couldn't have been, it was very hard for a disruptor to come along when Live Nation had so much of the pie. But with COVID my point. taking a huge pit, yeah. yeah, it's now there's opportunity. Yeah, that's my point. I don't think I articulated as well as you just did, but like you know that 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 with live streaming, Live Nation doesn't yet own that. They don't. They you know so if you've got negative brand equity and and negative net promoter score and a substitute emerges, you are fucked. 
right? That's what companies don't seem to realize. If you've got a monopoly, you know, either either state mandated Comcast or whatever, mm-hmm. um, or just monopoly that's just right on the edge of antitrust things, you can have the worst net promoter score and brand equity you want. As soon as a substitute emerges, goodbye, blockbuster Netflix. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what'd you all write about? Well, the personas piece that we've talked about, I think the last two episodes is done and up and so that is um my contribution this week finally (laughs) and thank you both for all of your help and feedback and collaboration with that one i'm excited to continue that as kind of a next ongoing series for entrepreneurship and art i love it and yeah yeah, it's a really great piece and and i do want to handbook eyes it whenever you're ready or whenever you want to augment it i do think there's a natural nexus between dan's book and and what you've written like i I think that the two there's a hand in glove thing where determining who Mm -hmm. those personas are allow you to kind of figure out who your most passionate percentile in your total addressable market is and then use some of dan's tactics to test it right well that's what part three is i I know i'm just saying that it's it's cool that there are these you know different kind of pieces that that you're both working on that, that, that 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 to my mind at least and i'm 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 I do this too often, but I, I bundle things into neat little packages, but to my mind, work very well together. Yeah. Well, so that's what I've been working on this past week, starting to put together ideas for now that we have these personas, how do we reach out to these people and specifically through ad tests so that we can have some clear measurable data. And there's a bunch of different ways we can do it, right? We can be sending people to articles, to the site, to the podcast, or doing a straight mm-hmm. direct email sign up and use the newsletter to bring people in, uh, do some videos and focus more on awareness and what type of how many people are actually watching you know more than 15 seconds of a video so tons of different stuff that we can test and we'll try to condense it into one neat article rather than a uh, 15 page marketing proposal but well but it's, uh, this is fun should, yeah it is and and i i hope i hope that like I mean, I don't think, you know, I'll have many contributions to the canon of, of kind of business thinking or whatever, but, but one that I do think is important is that, that distinction between the total addressable market and, and what I call the MPP, the most passionate percentile. And I just, I, I, and I'm sure, I hope one of our listeners sends me something. I, I, it, it's probably not an original thought. But I, I, I think I, I think it's important to, and I hope it kind of comes through. Where, yeah, you've got a total addressable market of people that might like the show, for instance. There's only a small sliver of them that actively go out and seek these types of things. That's the most passionate percentile. Marketing is about finding them or making them aware of it. Then they do the job of telling their friends. And 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 I, I'm you know. I'm, working on it every day in my writing and my teaching or whatever, trying to drive that home because I think it's so imperative because if you get that wrong, what happens is you, you think that your work is bad, right? Mm-hmm. So not using us as an example, like I see so many musicians who make, to my mind, amazing work. They're, they're quote unquote marketing. They're just kind of throwing it out there. They're not getting the, the feedback that they want. So then they start to think that their art is no good and and more likely they haven't found that most passionate percentile and and we think of marketing as this like like just blow you know carpet bombing everyone that's wrong 
right? You, you have to see your total addressable market and understand that you're marketing at best, no matter how much money you have, no matter what you do, it's only going to reach maybe five to 10% of that total addressable market in the awareness stage. And then your job is to look to see those people telling their friends, the customer's teacher thing. And then your job is to accelerate that. And, and, and I know I'm a broken record on, on that, but um, I, I think it's if I can impart anything to, to listeners or students or businesses or whatever, that's the challenge is, is, is finding those, those, those few passionate people. And I wish people would spend more time finding them rather than just constantly trying to make their quote unquote art fit some imagined market. Mm. I think that that sends a bad signal and you end up mm. making less art. So when you're thinking about that most passionate percentage, are you are you letting them self-identify? Are you yes, saying, you have to. Yeah, it's, right. it, it's like it's like a, if you had the analogy I always give, if, if your total addressable market is a huge gallon jug of, of jelly beans that all look the same. So you've got a hundred or a thousand grape jelly beans in a big vat. A hundred of those taste like the nectar of the gods. They taste like George's uh, uh, Negroni or something. The other, the other nine hundred taste like boogers or something, right? But you don't, you don't know because they all look the same. So your job is then, and this it's important that we talk about customer journey too. Your job is to try to make that whole bag of of indistinguishable, undifferentiated jelly beans aware and then let that hundred self-select and then your job is to look closely and you can do that now with social media with i mean all the good work that you do dan it's like oh wait this person actually shared it this person direct messaged it those are the delicious jelly beans telling their friends right well, and, and, and yeah. spreading it and that's what's important because i when i've talked about this with people that don't have a marketing background before the maybe it's the intuitive solution is all right well these are the very narrow, specific characteristics of what I think the most passionate percent. That's the wrong way to do it. You need to go wide and identify the people that, or let them identify themselves. Let them self-identify. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to. But you have to know what to look for. I think that's of course. It's you have a thesis, yeah. and that's what's so cool about what you all are doing. We have this thesis. You have to have a, a swag, a sophisticated, wild-ass guess, some kind of thesis, and then you have to test it. But you can't, you can't redouble. Where it gets tricky is it's one thing to do that with, with you know, a phone case or something, and be like, oh, okay, well, we need to, you know, change the phone case so that. But with art, I, I don't think you should do that. I think you should just double down on no, this is my art. This is my purpose. This is what I make, and also double down on redefining those characteristics and testing it rather than changing your art to match some imagined persona. But you, you can change the distribution. Right? Sure. You, you, you can change 100%. the platform. Your approach, yeah. your all of those things, but not your art. Like your, like your art should be a constantly evolutionary process of where you are in that moment, mm -hmm. speaking from your heart. Not, oh, I think, I think this perceived audience would like it if I did this. You, Bad, bad idea. But I mean, it's like if you, we've got an audience question that I think links to this would be a good transition. Yeah. But if if you keep on putting out the best music in the world and no one's hearing it because it's it's just another random music file uh, hosted on Spotify and no one's listening to it, and you, 
you think maybe I should turn this into a video. Maybe I should record sure. myself playing this. And it's the same art, but it's different platform, different medium, and that's what triggers. Those are the different tests you have to do to, you know, maybe people want to watch not, it sometime, or maybe they want to listen to yeah, it. Yeah, but right? not like I need to add add a digital delay so I sound like the edge, right? Like it's 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 marketing is doing something remarkable and putting it in front of people predisposed to care. Yeah. Most artists spend. 80% of their time or 99% of their time doing what they think is remarkable instead of just do, being themselves and then spending 80, 90% trying to find those. I don't, give me five, give me five, 10 people that absolutely love what some artists doing and then empower them to tell their friends. I'd way rather have that than a hundred thousand people that are kind of, eh, you know? well, but the, the kind of dark side of that is you have to be remarkable or be remarkable to someone. But but right? everybody is. That everybody, the one thing that can't be commoditized or monopolized or whatever is you. I firmly believe that everybody is remarkable, right? It's, you know, some people find ways to express that differently and more emphatically than otherwise, but there's no scenario in which anyone will ever convince me that every human isn't remarkable in their way. This is the, the very essence of purpose, not product. The key is making that purpose bigger than, than yourself. Yeah, I, I, I'm not, I swear, maybe I disagree. I mean, I agree that every person is remarkable, but if let's say I had a passion for painting and I'm not a, a visually artistic person, but just because yeah, I love doing it, well, that's a thing, right? It's, it's a hobby, but if I wanted it to be more and I just, it wasn't there. No, but, but then I, then I would argue that you don't have a passion for painting. You have a purpose for something and painting is your current vehicle to express that purpose. And maybe you need a different vehicle. So many of my students came to Berkeley because Art is their passion, and they started mm -hmm. as guitar players. They got to Berkeley and realized that, that they, you know, even though they were the best guitar player in their high school, now they're surrounded by everyone who is the best guitar player in their high school. They changed to music business. Oftentimes I see them doing that with a little bit of, 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 of feeling like they, they didn't achieve something. And the first thing I say to them is, no, 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 no. Your purpose is that you believe art matters. Your original product of that was making music. Now your product is helping other people make music, but your purpose is still the same. So maybe that painter, they're, they're, the painting is a product, a byproduct of some higher purpose. They have something they're trying to express. Maybe they, they, they need to change their medium, but they don't change their purpose. Yeah. I, I think we're we're pretty closely aligned then because it but then you're saying it's no matter how much i pay to promote my painting if it's not work i need to look at the signal see that's not working and then yeah. you know you, you say it's not changing change, it's not changing your purpose it's, it's changing the art though it is changing mm, can the be art. but to me uh, it's all to me it's all the same to me it's it's i mean look at the there's, it's not a coincidence that bob dylan great great singer songwriter also badass painter miles davis great trumpet player badass painter i mean so like it's it, if you're if you have that creative thing they're just different mediums for the same purpose with me with business like it's like gosh there are some things that i'm more uh passionate about music or whatever but i i love the act of trying to help businesses create sustainable kind of enterprises you know like and I, your 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 analogy, Dan, sticks with me constantly. Would you ask a, a a carpenter why she has ten hammers? 
that's not me. That's Ali Abdul. But yeah. So would you ask a creative person, wait, what, wait, I thought you were a guitar player. Why are you painting? No, fuck you. It's just a different hammer. I, I, I think you're right, but I think there's, there's a way to original conversation was there's, if you're creating art, there's someone there that will want to be a fan of it. Want to be a, a patron, whatever. This is changing it to, you might need to change the way you're expressing yourself. You're creating you. <laughs> Not yeah, yeah, you, but it's expressing yourself, right? That's expressing, you're still expressing your purpose you. that's bigger than you. And the tragedy of life is that some people never recognize what that is. Mm-hmm. They just bounce through a a, 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 a life never, and and, I, and it's it's heartbreaking. They because they, you know they've never found a way through whatever medium to express that thing that they have at a higher level to, to affect others. Transcendence is occurs through creation. Doesn't matter if it's painting or coding or cooking or whatever, the tragedy are those people who do not find transcendence through creation instead become passive and just let the world kind of create on top of them. And they become bitter. There's a straight line straight line relationship between bitterness and feelings of lack of opportunity. It's and, and so if you look at all these race reasons, we've systemically kept, kept people from opportunity and you wonder why they're bitter. <laughs> let's, uh, yeah. let's pull this into our, our audience question. Cause I think it fits it. pretty neatly. What is it? Uh, this is from Ford. Ford. He says, Hello, Ford. <laughs> Ford. What? Who's Ford? Ford. Ford. Who's that character? Who's Ford? Ford. Is, oh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Ford Perfect. Ford Prefect or Perfect? Been a while since I watched that. Not watched it. You got to read the book. I know the book, but <laughs> the movie was good. Um, mm-hmm. Martin Freeman. Oh, The Hobbit, and and also the original Office, right. the original Jim, and Watson. Yeah, that was a good Sherlock series. Anyway. We can never get past the names of people that, uh, and this person has a great name, uh, for their anonymity. Anonymity. Ford. Just Ford. Anonymity. Yeah. That's a hard one to say. It's like Sursenvent. Sursenvent? But Ford, you have a great name. I know, but in Arrested Development, he says Sursen. (laughs) Hey guys, I plan on releasing a series on mixtapes over the next year. Do it in a Cockney accent. I'm not doing a Cockney accent. (laughs) Besides one song, I haven't put anything out, so I have zero momentum. I've experienced coding and thought about using the Twilio API to create a replica of the Superphone with the intention of building a cult following and have some other ideas, but I'd really love your feedback and advice. If it is helpful, my distributor is AWOL. I I fucking love that, right? The fact that that Ford, if that is indeed your name, um, (laughs) even knows what Twilio is, is badass. The fact that Ford, if indeed that is his name, knows what Superphone is. So I, I, I can put this in the show notes. I, I profiled Ryan Leslie many moons ago, um, who invented the Superphone, um, a great black entrepreneur, right? You know, um, and and, uh, and it's one of the uh, actually we can use the audio too because it's it's up on on SoundCloud. We could podcast that. She was a great conversation. Super smart guy. Um, 
So Ford is thinking, to my opinion, in all the right ways. He or she or whatever it is or they is is thinking in terms of how can I create some collisions? How can I create, uh, you know, use technology to? And I would go back to to finding um, finding that audience, finding that most passionate percentile. Um, I, you know, the the whole the whole um, the whole part about uh, what was it like the, the mixtapes? You know. Mixtapes is an interesting it's a kind of subculture thing, but like to me, it's a way that artists use to kind of contextualize their work with others, right? So it's like, well, here I am, here's some other thing. And again, that can be a really good test. The only thing that I don't like about that question is like, what did he say? Try to create a cult following? Yes. You can't do that, right? Don't, don't, don't it, it, again, it's like, it's like when people say, I'm going to create a community. You can't do that unless you're a fascist, right? You have to put, you have to put, pe- put your work out there and then help people organize around it, you know? So my advice to Ford was, would be, you are on the right track, my man. I would love, or person, I would love to hear your music. Keep diving down those rabbit holes of building things using Twilio or whatever, testing it and write about your journey. Like what, what's most interesting about this question to me, I don't have to hear one note of this person's music to know that I'm interested, and this goes back to your point completely, Dan, of, of him as a person. Like anyone that's a musician that's also thinking about Twilio, like that's interesting to me, and I'm not the only one. That's something I, I'm not saying I will, but I would write about someone like that much faster than I would, oh, it's a good song. You know who's got a good song? Every fucking one, right? So those things that can can differentiate and distinguish. So I think Ford is on the right path. Keep colliding, keep looking for new technologies, Build something on Twilio. Send it to me. I promise I will, at minimum, look at, at it and smoke test it because that's the type of ingenuity I believe that innovation will always come at the margin and from the marginalized, and it will be cobbling together new things. And not enough people have used Twilio to build things, and it's a super robust and powerful tool. And more artists should be dealing with it. Well, and, and I like that you brought up kind of documenting that process. Because that lends itself to consistency, which I think is yes. really important, and there's not mm-hmm. enough in music. Right, uh, I, and I write it down. Gonna, yeah, I don't know how often he's going to be really, or yeah, write it down, or record a video of what you're doing, whatever it is, or a podcast, whatever. I, I so yeah, I'm so excited. I'm sorry, but like so so like networking and everything occurs when you do something for others without expecting or asking anything in return. That's how you, how it works. So if Ford would, would blog, medium post about this journey and say, hey, here's what I've learned, other artists, watch what happens, right? Purpose is doing something bigger than yourself. Ford, write your process and what you're thinking about Twilio, put it out there online and, and talk about that's interesting. That, mm-hmm. that will help you find that most passionate percentage much more quickly than than just I'm sure your songs are great or I'm sure there's someone out there that thinks your songs are great. But when you talk about things like Twilio and all this other, it makes you a human. It makes you three-dimensional rather than just some sort of commoditized singer-songwriter, which the world doesn't need any more of. It makes you a, what what was your term, Dan? New media creator? New media creator. Yeah. New media entrepreneur. I like creator more. Please. Okay, fine. Down. Well, I guess wow. it's I entrepreneurship. New media and creator. Art, you know, entrepreneur means business. Creator means art, and there's somewhere in between, or they're both. Yeah. Um, but the the consistency of putting out content also gives you more at bats, right? And that's yeah. more chances for someone for you to capture that that magic of that inspiration, put it out there, because it's 
it's so difficult, I think, for artists. Artists are never going to be able to, I don't see never, are unlikely that they're going to be able to put out music at such a clip that it's continually interesting and there's so much emotional kind of baggage kind of involved in creating music. It's much easier to have that as kind of your key tentpole product and have supporting content that's ongoing around it and adjacent to it. Uh, and I think that's, I'm seeing more and more artists figure it out, and I'm going to bring that up as one of my three things. But so uh, exciting, so exciting. This is so this is the I artist want, as I a want, media company kind of thing. I love that. And so, so, so I know we've got the Slack channel set up. I, I want to send Ford a T-shirt, a book, something, both. And and I want him to or her. I, I get Ford's. I mean, obviously, a man's name, right? I mean, it's not like like um, like Pat or something, right? Um, uh, I want. <laughs> him i assume to um well you know what i mean or like <laughs> I just, i'm i'm saying how ironic it would be if ford is in, in fact a uh, a woman and it's mm-hmm. listening. <laughs> you know or they like i, I don't know i don't fucking know but like ford can identify they self um but but one way or the other we should send send ford a book and a shirt yes. and then most importantly i want ford to keep us uh, apprised Posted. Yeah, and then we can encourage and hold Ford accountable. Send us a blog post. Maybe we'll share it, right? Yeah. Maybe not. Start writing. (laughs) Maybe not. This is an editorial process. We're not the New York Times who just publishes anything. (laughs) Sorry. All right, Trace Kosas. Are we there? Yeah, I think we're there. Uh, Who wants to? I started last week. George, take it away. You don't go first often. Jorge. There's a reason for that. <laughs> Jorge, yes. Jorge. I've tried calling him that in the past. He doesn't respond that well to it. Do you, Jorge? I respond to Jorgeissimo. <laughs> Jorgeissimo. Imagine Jorge would have a straw hat and a pipe. That's okay. very Spanish. Ah, yes. Pancho. Conquistador. All right. Well, I shall go. I, 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 I as I said at the top of the show, like Scotus. The Supreme Court of the United States um, has just given me so much, so much, I don't know what, just hope this week, right? Um, starting first with the Gorsuch uh, decision uh, on on the, uh, you know, he, he was the sixth, it was a 6-3 decision on um, that declared that the 1964 Civil Rights Act ban on employment description discrimination based on sex also covers lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer workers, right? So any employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender defies the law. Um, Gorsuch is a Trump appointee, right? And and so I'm going to kind of segue into that. But what's, uh, what's great beyond just how amazing that that ruling is and how i always say law lags culture like crazy that it's taken so long but then this also my hope is that it's going to like like last week i was super depressed for all the obvious reasons but one of them was um trump trying trump, not trying trump repealing the health regulation that protected transgender people from discrimination right this decision allows them to go and push back against that which is mm-hmm. awesome, right? So that that's point one of my SCOTUS one. Then Roberts crushing, um, um, and again, Roberts was uh, uh, Roberts was a, a Bush appointee, right? Uh, and and so um, 
you know, he's, he follows in this line, again, like Gorsuch, Trump appointee, Roberts, another conservative appointee. People forget that Nixon appointed Blackman, right? The conservative of conservative. And Blackman wrote the Roe v. Wade opinion. Right. So like this, this, this idea that, 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 um, you know, Trump's legacy will be, well, he stacked the courts and, and, and we've talked about this before. And certainly at, at some of the lower levels, there, there may be more correlation between, you know, your, your, your leanings, um, and your, and your decisions. But at the Supreme Court level, I mean, I went back and looked and it's, they, they tend to, vote their conscience not all of them and and so uh with with roberts right so um uh the 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 uh, um affordable care act roberts was the one you know it was an obama thing and roberts upheld it right so so again like you get these 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 uh, elements and then um you know so so roberts actually wrote the daca decision uh, which was was the recent one, and, and I thought I thought it was great. But Sotomayor had the best line of it, and, and, and she said the decision to end the DACA program was quote contaminated by the impermissible discriminatory animus, and she called out the other judges for meaning Trump's just relentless, dis, in, impermissible discriminatory animus like that's when the supreme court like just throwing those three words together it's like holy fuck it, it makes me want to cry and jump for joy or whatever some of their decisions and, and renderings are so beautifully written and so anyway being able to do that just just it, it, like we have like rule of law is under just relentless threat right now um, um you know totalitarianism um, begins with the destruction of rule of law, which Trump has, has tried desperately to do, and the Supreme Court is pushing back. The destruction of the free press, which which obviously Trump has been trying to do since inception with the whole fake news thing, but most recently getting rid of um, the, the, the person in charge of, of, of Radio Free Europe and Voice of America. Like, that's really scary. More people need to be talking about that. And then the third prong of, of liberal democracy is 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 business, and, and the government shouldn't be. Should, and so we look at all these antitrust things. So we're on shaky grounds, but rule of law at this moment tends to be kind of prevailing. Um, my second is uh, a great New Yorker piece on on yesterday's uh, um, Juneteenth, and and I, I I really I really wrestled with it. Um, I'm proud to say that that. Um, you know, we work with a company that, that said, you know, we're going to we're going to honor Juneteenth and, and re- use it as time to reflect. I, I personally, um, you know, I, I, I didn't. The, 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 again, the language around it is hard. You don't you don't say happy Juneteenth. It's not, you, you know, I mean, in one way, it's a it's a hat. Anyway, this this person put it put it re- really, really well. Um, in, in, in the New York article, and I'll just read it very quickly. Um, he said, um, the fact that slaveholders extracted 30 additional months of uncompensated labor from people who have been bought, sold, and worked to exhaustion like livestock throughout their lives is cause for mourning, not celebration. In honoring that moment, we should recognize a moral at the heart of that day in Galveston and in the entirety of American life. There is a vast chasm between the concept of freedom inscribed on paper and the reality of freedom in our lives. In that regard, 
Juneteenth exists as a counterpoint to the 4th of July. The latter heralds the arrival of American ideals. The former stresses just how hard it has been to live up to them. And it's like, you know what I mean? And like, so I thought that summed it up and how I've been, been feeling so much of the time. And then last but not least, I, I, how can I not talk about, um, about Bob? Uh, uh, Rough and Rowdy Ways, his new record, uh, came out yesterday. And Doug Brinkley, who I know a little bit, is a great writer and historian, um, did a great interview with Bob. And, and in it, he called the record lyrical cubism. And, and that, that hit me really, really hard because, yeah, cause I, I don't know if you've all listened to the records, but you, you probably heard the, the, the Murder Most Foul, which was, quote unquote, the single, the long thing about, about JFK. Um, and, and so I was thinking, like, so if modernism is Picasso, Cubanism, right? Or, on, you know, Andre Gide or T.S. Eliot or something, right? It's modernism. And postmodernism is like Foucault or Jacques Derrida or something. What the hell is Dylan? Like, it, like there's no category for it. It's, it's like post postmodernism or something. Um, and so just a couple of quotes from the interview. Uh, the record's amazing. But just a couple of things that, that, that Bob talked about in his interview with, with, with Doug Brinkley. He said that um, uh, the names themselves are not solidarity. It's the combination of them that adds up to something more than the singular parts. To go too much into detail is irrelevant. The song is like a painting. You can't see it all at once. If you're standing too close, the individual pieces are just part of a whole because he, he, you know, he'll go and he'll name check everyone from Anne Frank to Indiana Jones in the same couplet. And it's that sort of pulling back. Um, and then this, this, I thought, you know, Bob, he's ahead of us all. Um, he, he has, and this is from, from Doug's piece. He says, you know, Dylan also worked to expose the arrogance of white privilege in the viciousness of racial hatred in America throughout songs like George Jackson, Only a Pawn in Their Game, and The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. One of his most fierce lines about policing and race came in 1976 on, on, on the Desire record um, about you know, Hurricane Carter, when he says, the lyric is, in Patterson, that's just the way things go. If you're black, you might as well not show up on the street unless you want to draw the heat. Right. And so like Bob's been doing this theme forever. Hurricane was such a profound song in 1976. Um, And then I just, just a couple more quotes because we've talked about him in the podcast. He said, Bob says of little Richard, I, uh, little Richard, I grew up with, and he was there before me, lit a match under me, tuned me into things I never would have known on my own. That's what art does. That's what Little Richard does, tune someone like Bob Dylan into things that on his own he never would have known. And then um, he talks about being inspired. He says, yeah, Ella Fitzgerald as a singer inspires me, African-American artist. Oscar Peterson as a, as a piano player, African-American artist. Has any of it inspired me as a songwriter? And then he says, yeah, Ruby, my dear, by Monk. I have no fewer than two posters of Monk on, on my wall or photos of Monk. That song set me off in some direction to do something along those lines. I remember listening to that over and over again. So Bob, you know, doing his thing and, and just like, I don't know, it just, it, it, it felt really, really good yesterday to have the kind of Supreme Court thing, the backfiring of Trump's nonsense, both at the Supreme Court level and He's right. More people do know about Juneteenth than before he tried to schedule a rally on it. Thanks, you know. And then Bob just just absolutely 
crystallize in it as he so always does. So those are my three things. Nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, all right, I've got some uh, some weird ones. Uh, first is a movie from 1953, I think, that I just watched for the first time this week, Roman Holiday. Oh, sure. Classic. Uh, Cary Grant and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, Audrey Hepburn. It's great. Yeah. I had never seen it, and I don't know why I decided to put it on, but I loved it, and I... Just such a great movie. Uh, great. I just wanted to make sure everyone hears about it. Uh, it is great. And it's definitely a, a trope I feel that has been used many times since then, but uh, it's just fun. It's I don't great. know. It's, like it's sitting on the steps of the uh, Coliseum or whatever. It's great. Uh, second one, uh, George, your comments two weeks ago now about Yes's Roundabout and how could oh, anyone yeah. sit down and either love it or hate, listen to eight minutes or however long that song is of just musical, <laughs> not nonsense, but it just goes on. Uh, dudes and capes. Ma- <laughs> and dudes and capes. That made me think about uh, Dave Grohl's play that he put out a year ago, two years ago. It's it's this 23-minute-long, I guess you call it a song. And it's basically 23 minutes of just, like, various Foo Fighters rhythm section. but And it's pretty, like, mediocre, I would say, as far as songwriting goes. I find goes, him like, pretty mediocre. Sorry, I know I'm going to offend everyone in the world. but Well, uh, I mean, uh, and I'm, a, I'm a big Foo Fighters fan. Or at least that was Foo Fighters were definitely the band that got me to play guitar when I was... Really? 11 or 12. Yeah, Hey Johnny Park off the Color and Shape album, that guitar intro. I'd listen to the first 15 seconds of that song, then hit back and listen to the first 15 seconds again. Um, but I digress. And so at first I was listening back to it and I was like, yeah, it's just, it's like if he wrote six Foo Fighter songs all in the same key and then just strung them together. Uh, but what he did that was really great and I feel like it didn't get enough press initially. One, he, he recorded all the parts himself, which is not new for Dave Grohl. That was the first Foo Fighters album. But he he recorded all of it in this big recording studio. I think it's East-West Studio. Mm-hmm. And he lined up all the instruments in a circle. And he played each one. And he had a video camera guy film him playing each one. And so you can go to the website and you can watch just him playing the guitar part or just him playing mm-hmm. the drums, just him playing the bass. And he wrote out... Or, he probably didn't write out. He had someone transcribe the charts for each instrument. And part of his reason for doing this was for music education so that kids could, I don't know, just, just have another resource. Or I think he donated. He lists a bunch of different organizations he loves. But also he he wrote out the inputs for all of the instruments and what mics he used oh, and cool. what the process was. and the studio layout of how he laid out all the different instruments. It's very, I hadn't appreciated before how in depth he went because you can watch the video and say you just want to watch guitar one. And it's like him playing alone in this huge studio of just this guy doing this thing that he loves, making himself happy. You can only hear that one guitar part because you can isolate that guitar and it's just him doing his thing. And there's, there's definitely something, uh, special about that despite you know it's not like 
this incredible composition. It, it genuinely is. It could be any Foo Fighters song in just yeah. the rhythm section. No, but it's cool. And 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 I, I'm not like he seems like a a, a fantastic human, you know. Mm-hmm. But I just am, like there's no scenario in which I'm going to be like, oh, you know, I want to listen to some Foo Fighters. Um, but uh, but you know, monster drummer, right? You know, I mean, un- undeniably, Nevermind was in large part as successful as it was because of his amazing drumming. But um, but that's interesting to me. Like I, I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out, to, you know, so to be able to have transparency around, okay, I use this mic, like that. That's really, I'll definitely check that. Well, and, and his talk about purpose. I mean, his purpose has yeah. definitely shifted from being a rock star to whether it was. Um, was it Sound City and restoring right. the, the documentary the studio, that was cool. or yeah. the yeah. visiting yeah. all the different cities and talking yeah. about their musical history and this? Yeah, that um, was cool. yeah, he's he's kind of a well, he's uh, better than fucking Novoselic, who has now gone to the dark side. Well, and, I, yeah. and I always thought he was, you know, the, the I mean, of the three, he was always like, really, you know. But now, I say that about most bass players. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you defend that one to all the bass players who listen to this you know tell that to Jocko or James Jamerson or yeah. something but, but yeah Novoselic went to the dark side or maybe it's yeah. always been on the dark side um, the last thing I have uh, and I've, I've mentioned this guy before Julian Villard um, who, who's an artist I, I, I was a fan of for a long time and then I got to work with him a few years ago uh, so he has I never shared the remote musician's handbook with him, but he has gone all in on it. And starting last week, he is treating himself like a media company. He has ah. four he has four recurring um, kind of live broadcasts. At least one of them is a performance that he does. It's Friday. He calls it Friday Night Live. He performs. Um, and the removal of this kind of skeuomorphic elements he's he's really engaging with the chat and that's what takes it from i'm just performing to it's it's what twitch streamers yeah, do. The it, it, it's, yeah, it's yeah. the it's just talking with the people that are there uh market conversations that makes fun yeah and he's he's asking questions and people are people are typing in the replies and he's reading them to everyone and he's he's engaging with it and he knows a lot of the people because he's been around for forever um so that's good and he, he then he also does now a podcast, which he records live, and they have a guest. It's called the The Real Gentleman of Queens, I think. And then he's got another show where he interviews songwriters. And then he also does a weekly thing with Joe's Pub, and it's the same time yeah. every week. And it's it's basically uh, it's like he is I don't know MTV or something. It's I can tune in at whatever time I want to cast the show that I want. Uh, and then last night on his live stream, he was like, what do you guys think about me setting up a Patreon and doing a membership platform? And I was like, do it. Like, why, why haven't you? So it's, and this is what he should have been doing all along. Cause one right. with, with Julian, what he, his personality is such a big part of him, obviously yeah. his, his, his live show, I mean, his music, his music has a ton of personality and his music is funny. Um, and it's, it, but it's not until you hear him talk while he's playing and he's telling the stories that it really comes out. And he's just like a true New Yorker that has been there, seen that, uh, and he's traveled the world. And so he, he is a um, kind of a raconteur. I don't know. He, he tells stories and he uh, he's a showman. Um, and so these are 
great platforms for him where he's been he's been putting out music forever and some of it's hit and some of it hasn't um but i think injecting his personality and letting people see that is the medium that is going to help people connect so um, you gotta I'm wave your purpose like a big flag mm-hmm. love yeah. it I, I i will i not i've heard you talk about this dude but now i'm interested you have my attention you know? and if it had <laughs> just been like he's another no it's like if he's just another singer songwriter like you know you know who i like bob dylan it's like uh a modern um i shouldn't say this uh, i'm not i'm not gonna say it because yeah don't no, no, let, let me let me i'll let you no it's and it, it, he he talks about how that's how people always reference him and he's nearly like inviting that type of comparison yeah, I don't, I don't he wanna, all the time yeah let me listen and i'll report back that's <laughs> great though and and can we like you guys didn't ask me about what i wrote about but um but can we can we like document that i mean obviously in the show notes or whatever like i really love this 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 process of talking about these artists and then directing our listeners to them and, and getting that conversation going I'll, I'll I'll talk with Julian and I'll do a piece on it. That'd be so great, yeah. yeah. And um, just just because I want Carly to have the last word, so I did write, I did answer um, the the one of the questions from last week about the interband agreement. I believe it's up on the blog now. Yeah. I, I repurposed a, 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 a older article, and then there was two parts to that question, and one was a, a more deep dive on the the uh, local performance rights for foreign people. I've talked with a colleague of mine and I'm planning to interview him and deal with that in depth, but that's what I'm working on. We included that in the last episode show notes. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, my turn? Yeah. My first one is maybe kind of weird, but mint. I love Mint. I'm loving mint. The, herb the financial so thing or right mint now? like that you muddle to make I a thought uh, the financial julep. thing as well. It says yeah, so it's a, much. It's like, oh, you love yeah. mint? How do you feel about QuickBooks? Yeah, mint rules. <laughs> um, my dad has like, he planted some mint a couple of years ago and it's completely overtaken part yeah. of his garden because it is like a weed. It's a weed, yeah. And he's been frustrated by it but i'm like no it rules i've been putting it in iced tea fish in salads i love mint i love the way it smells julep the fuck out of it yeah and now it's been like full-on summer and so it just it's one of those summer flavors i think too i mean a mint tea can always be nice but um i've convinced him that because like one of the two gardens out front was almost overtaken completely and he was frustrated by it, and I was like, no, rip everything else up and just have mint there. It. it will it. look, and it's like, it's big, so. Um, Get him to grow some cilantro, then you can lab guy everything. Just mint, cilantro, and fish cilantro sauce. Cilantro is as easy to, to grow, it's though. It's not. Mint will yeah. just take over, but. It's actually a weed. It's like all yeah. over his yard, yeah. but so I'm loving it, and I think he's just, he's waving the white flag. Hmm. Um, and then I mentioned that I'm reading uh, Rowan Farrow's Catch and Kill, oh, yeah. but one of the parts that like really stood out to me, and it was also the two-year anniversary of his death, is Anthony Bourdain's kind of involvement oh. in it. Um, He's, I because- fuck, I'm so, so mad at that motherfucker. He won, and he made other people that are outliers also feel like they could win, and then he offed himself, and I just I can't forgive him for that. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, the, it's deeply sad, but I didn't, yeah, I mean, he was dating a woman, Asia Argento, um, at the time of his death as well, and she was um, one of the many victims of Harvey Weinstein, and there's a very similar narrative, a thread with all of the victims and that they were just encouraged often by those closest to them to be quiet about it, to take the settlement and to just not go through the kind of emotional stress of reliving it and litigating it. And, and then, you know, having that be a part of you publicly and Asia Argento, I'm not sure if I'm saying her name correctly, um, really didn't want to speak to Ron, Ronan uh, or be included in the story. And it was Anthony Bourdain who really encouraged her to. And there's a really nice quote in the book that Anthony Bourdain said to Ron Barrow. It was like, I'm not a religious man, but I pray you have this, the courage or the strength to, to pursue this story. And, um, and to be honest, I just haven't really thought of him that much lately, but it was the two-year anniversary of his death at the beginning of this month. And I also do think he was just a really powerful spirit. And I was looking for something a little bit more timely, like HBO Max, for anyone that has that. They just added Parts Unknown um, like a couple of weeks ago. But it's kind of hard to watch that. It's not on a lot of like the more... Um, like it's not on Netflix or on Amazon, but I would just, I, I don't know. I think it, watch him, read him. He was, he was a really special person and, and his involvement in that, um, in that spirit. I mean, the story gets complicated because then she was accused. Like people also making, that was like used to discredit her because then she had sexually assaulted a, um, allegedly uh, a minor and um, people then use that as a discredit, but that's also like something that happens to victims. They become abusers themselves and he died Almost always. shortly after. Um, and he had actually paid her settlement to keep him. Anyway, so the whole story is kind of, it's ugly, but I think his spirit in all of that is something to be celebrated and we need more kind of, people like Anthony Bourdain. So in whichever way, whether it's making one of his recipes or watching one of his shows or reading one of the several amazing interviews about him, um, Anthony Bourdain. Is Read Kitchen Confidential. I mean, that, you yeah. know, and, and yeah. I can't, it was like, one, I don't really do appointment viewing, you know, whatever, but like parts unknown I had on my little device every Sunday and I, I would look forward to it every time. I can't watch him. I'm so mad at him. I'm so fucking mad at him. What's um, your third thing? My third thing, and I, I wanted to mention it last week, but I hadn't um, watched any of it myself. But uh, last, I think it was last Sunday, actually, um, Vendas Voss, a new show, came out on Netflix, and it is conceptualized and produced by zoo agency who I used to work for and still do some work for in Berlin. And, um, the CEO of zoo agency, Tom Elsner, his father, Frank Elsner, there, there's not an equivalent in Canada. And I don't think that there would be in the U S either, but 
um, Frank Elsner was like the news anchor of Germany, of the, the country. He was on every person's TV set. Like Walter Cronkite or something. Yeah, yeah. There's like a guy, Peter Mansbridge in Canada. But I don't think that they have the same kind of... Um, Clout isn't the right word, but like real like significance. A bit, I mean, media in Germany was obviously complicated for a long time. And um, anyway, so he he's always been like a really adored kind of figure within the media. And he he had his um, his show, and he actually was the beginning of the Nobel Project. But I then continued my time there. He interviewed Nobel laureate in kind of a really human way in all of the fields. And um, anyway, so he was uh, diagnosed with Parkinson a few years ago, and he hadn't really been in the spotlight. And um, together with Zoo, uh, we kind of pitched this, his final TV show, his final interview television show, and kind of like slightly inspired by David Letterman's um, mm. show, how he came back. And, mm. um, and so we had the idea and, and Frank chose kind of like his dream guest, if you were to do, you know, kind of one final series like this. And actually, who knows? The idea was one last one, but there may be a second season, who knows? But um, the guest probably won't be super well-known to the English market. I mean, Helen Fisher is definitely the, be one of the biggest ones. You guys know her. She's like huge. Um, apparently she is the wealthiest female singer artist like ever. She's higher than Celine Dion, higher than uh, Britney Spears. Um, anyway, so the Jan Bummerman, it, like they're all German guests. Some of them may be recognizable, but you can watch it with subtitles, so you can maybe pick up some German while watching it. But I'm super proud of the team. It's so cool that it actually went from this idea to the latest show on Netflix. It's trending in Germany on Netflix, German Netflix. Germany's Netflix um, right now, but. Um, I watched the first couple of episodes and I'm just, I'm so proud of the team and the project and it's really beautifully shot. It's always just him with the one guest at a long table and the kind of idea too is that, you know, everyone sits at a different spot when they come and the table looks like they've just had a dinner party. So it's kind of like a really nice visual motif that continues. And so I'm proud of all of them and I'm so happy to see the final product. And uh, for anyone that maybe wants to learn a, a word in German or two, I suggest Venn das Voss. In English, it's called Frank Elsner, One Last Question. Um, but yeah, that's my third thing. That's great. And I know, I know how much you had to do with the creation of that. So it's, it's exciting to see it come to fruition. I do wish oh. they would do an episode on Vim Benders and craft work. Yeah, well, um, like I said, who knows? Maybe there'll be a second season of this after all. But um, yeah, they, it's, it's cool. It's really cool that it's, it's out there and that Netflix picked it up. And yeah, so I'm just, I'm proud. Of the team and the process, so great. That's that. This has been a good one. I do, I do hope we should we put a plug in for the Slack channel or continue to keep the conversation going. Um, love getting the questions. Do want to start throwing my book out to people, t-shirts, and and just kind of keep everyone, including ourselves and anybody who's listening, encouraged and accountable. 
keep sending them in. And yes. uh, oh, and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, George. Yeah. And, and those like you that have procreated, congrats. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Talk to you all soon. Bye, guys. The Entrepreneurship and Art Podcast is a GH Strategic Production, hosted by me, Harley Sheridan, Dan Cervantes, and George Howard. For more information and show notes, visit our website at entrepreneurshipandart.com.